0: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things.
1: Money, greed, and God. We know from history and evidence all around us which economic system works and which one makes people the happiest? It's the economic system of free enterprise. But is it the most moral? Free enterprise, a system that Karl Marx demonized as capitalism, now seems to be blamed for almost every social problem. Everywhere, business has become the villain, and socialism, as Alexandria Ocasio-Corses tells us, is the new promised land. It's not, and never has been, but advocates for economic freedom are doing a lousy job making not only the economic but the moral case for capitalism. For example, it's not based on greed. What it is about, and why it's not only moral but also Christian, is explained in a terrific book, Money, Greed, and God, by my guest today, Dr. Jay Richards. Jay's at Catholic University, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute and executive editor of The Stream. He's also author of The Human Advantage. Welcome, Jay. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. So why did you read a book with this great title, Money, Greed, and God? Well, it was honestly, when I originally wrote it, it was out of frustration
0: more than anything else. I mean, I myself had gone through a kind of socialist stage in college, had been convinced that moral people, and as a Christian, I thought Christians ought to be socialists. Uh, but I kept reading. I, I stumbled upon the economist Thomas Sowell and people like that. So by my senior year in college, I was convinced that the live alternatives, uh, free enterprise, that is an economically free system, is the best uh, uh, that we're going to get, The side of glory. But I didn't feel like anyone was really making that argument all that clearly. You
1: also went through an Ayn Rand phrase. I
0: did. I went through a very short <laughs> And you, Rand and phrase. You and read, you read Atlas Shrugged <laughs> how did. many times? I Well... Once, plus I read—this is John Galt speaking—several times in a row. And she was the most bracing defender of, quote, capitalism or freedom that I had read up to that point. And I found her critiques of communism and collectivism really compelling, but I found her moral framework not especially compelling, in fact, off-putting. And for a while, I thought, well, if we rely on Ayn Rand's argument for capitalism, we're probably in trouble.
1: Uh, but honestly, I didn't so, deal with so she exalted greed yeah. and and loathed which altruism. Altruism. In fact, yeah. she
0: has a book called uh, "The Virtue of Selfishness," which yeah. you know she defines these words in idiosyncratic ways. Nevertheless, I think that's a rhetorical non-starter.
1: Well, it's uh, it's also interesting. You point out John Galt mm-hmm. was a very Christ-like figure. Yes. So when we talk, so, <laughs> so hence the hence the God in the title. You need you know. So how is? What what do you see as the moral basis for uh, uh, for, for free enterprise? I mean, there, you've got a lot of elements in right. your book, but I wanted to maybe the headline.
0: Well, the headline is first. Let's define our terms. So what is free enterprise. Well, so free enterprise is it's an economic system with rule of law, limited government, uh, a vibrant civil society and culture, and then a large arena for individuals and firms to be able to engage e- each other freely for mutually beneficial. Gain. That's what I mean by free enterprise. And so if you, ask, if you frame it that way, then the question is, okay, what is the system, uh, you know, short of utopia, which we can't get, that is best for the human person, best allows cultures to emerge from poverty, best allows people to exercise their ingenuity and creativity to create wealth for themselves and others? If you ask the question that way and you define the terms properly, there's just one answer and it's free enterprise.
1: And it's another way of saying human freedom. Absolutely. It's human freedom,
0: but it's not the freedom that people often will think when they hear the word freedom, they think, well, that just means me doing whatever I want to do. No, Mm -hmm. that's the law of the jungle, right? Where everybody just does what he or she wants to do. And in that case, the strong enslave the weak. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about economic freedom. That's why the importance of rule of law and property rights. You need a basic rule
1: of law in order to have a culture that actually enjoys economic freedom in a robust sense. So... We've reissued. You've you've reissued "Money, Greed, and God." Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the 10th anniversary of the original. Yes. What changed? What uh, what what prompted you to reissue the book? A lot of
0: it was just a lot of the details. So I talk about eight myths in the original book. It's the same eight myths in the revised edition. But honestly, when I first wrote the book, I focused a lot on socialism, and my editor thought, "Ah, you're beating a dead horse." You know, this was 2007. The book came out in 2009. Nobody's talking about socialism. So we cut a bunch of the treatments of socialism. And in the revision, my my new editor said, actually, why don't we beef up the socialism discussion? Because if anything, uh, whereas before it was sort of behind the scenes, socialism is now endorsed publicly in American political debate and critiques of the market come from both the left and the right. So I felt like I needed to update it to account for that.
1: Well, when AOC and Bernie Sanders and every seems every Democrat candidate for, for president talks about socialism... They don't seem to be talking about the same thing. they are different versions of it. I mean, what, what, let, let's do the hard case for sure. socialism. What is it? What, well, it,
0: I, I say if we're going to talk about an idea, let's first look and see what the dictionary <laughs> says it is, right? Yeah. If you look up in Merriam-Webster what socialism is, it's, the, the two main things are it's a system in which the government owns the means of production, so all the productive property is owned by the government. And second, it's a system in which private property is abolished. Now, I suspect if you asked a millennial first to the term in that way and then ask them if they like socialism, you wouldn't get a lot of takers. But instead, I think what they're picturing is something like their imagined scenario of a Scandinavian village and, you know, a little fishing village in Norway where everybody has a Volvo in their garage and plenty of fish to eat. And they're able to sing together in the morning at the library, things like that, right? It's a mental picture that stands in for socialism as opposed to the actual definition of the word, and the actual history of the 20th century whenever socialism has been tried. So I think half the argument is just actually getting clear what we're talking about.
1: Well, the uh, AOC was on TV not too long ago, and she was saying, somebody said, well, you don't want us to be like Venezuela or Soviet Union Mm -hmm. or Cuba. And she said, no, no, I had in mind nice countries like Sweden. (laughs) But even Sweden, as I understand it, about eighty percent of the schools are privately uh, privately operated. Oh, There's absolutely. No government school system, and so what? And the private and the government ownership of most of the businesses, uh, they don't own it.
0: No, Is that's it? exactly right. I mean, if you just stick with a standard definition of socialism, uh, AOC doesn't want to talk about actual socialist countries such as Venezuela, but she wants to talk about countries that maybe have a large sa- social safety net, but yeah. aren't socialist. In fact, all the Scandinavian countries are always very high. On the annual index of economic freedom. In fact, it's easier to start a business in some Scandinavian countries than it is in the United States. And so it's only by really twisting the definitions, avoiding the actual socialist practice, and preferring your own private definition, I think that this debate even gets off the ground.
1: Well, don't some of the millennials just think it's mainly people being really nice to each other?
0: Oh, absolutely. Even AOC, once when she was asked what she meant by socialism, it was something like, well, a system in which everyone is accorded a a basic level of dignity. Well, everybody wants that. Of course, I I, I suspect every well-meaning American wants us to have a system in which everyone's rights are respected. That's not the question. The question is, what's the best economic arrangement uh, this side of the kingdom of God for a culture to actually be able to emerge from poverty. That's, I think, the key moral question when it comes to economics.
1: Well, and, and it's not, I, you make the point, and I, it's true, we, we take what we, the benefits of free markets for mm. granted. I mean, we're surrounded everywhere by things that were created by the free market. And uh, I love your story about uh, the way entrepreneurs proceed and how we ended up with uh, something everybody who owns a cat uses
0: (laughs) (laughs) kitty litter absolutely it's an amazing story that i stumbled on when i was working on on the book this guy named ed lowe that was selling fuller's clay and figured out you know maybe this stuff would be useful to help all these in his view these kind of crazy cat people that have cats Uh, peeing in sandboxes. Uh, It seemed like a non-starter. It ended up being an amazing innovation. It's it's a very lowly innovation, but it's now a multi-billion dollar industry. This is the typical thing that entrepreneurs do. They don't uh, hoard their wealth. They put their wealth at risk in pursuit of a vision, which if it is fulfilled, will inevitably serve some human need or desire.
1: We've talked about the myths uh, uh, around free enterprise and, and capitalism. And the kitty litter story talks, I think, really speaks to what you call the materialist myth. Mm. What's the materialist myth?
0: The materialist myth is treating wealth as if it's merely transferred rather than created. I mean, yeah. if you hear people say, well, so-and-so got more than his fair share, or he took more of the pie than someone else, that implies that the total amount of wealth is this fixed sum, like a pot of gold or, you know, or a cherry pie. When in fact, in vibrant economies, of course, the, the total amount of wealth grows over time. We have this capacity to create wealth that was not there before. And so that suggests to me that, that wealth must be something more than mere matter. It's more than mere physics and chemistry. It has something to do with the activities of, of human creativity. And we know this intuitively that you know, the iPhones, uh, Apple did not get iPhones by stealing them all from homeless people, obviously, right? They participated in a process of wealth creation that's actually a really interesting fact that I think explodes the idea that the only way to get wealthy is by taking wealth from someone else.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, uh, uh, coming back to uh, one of the things you quote in here is Oliver Wendell Holmes says, think things, not wor- words. What, what did he mean by that? It's perhaps my
0: only quote that I ever use of Holmes, honestly, but think things, not <laughs> words. In other words, don't allow just these terms with all your connotations, all these things you associate uh, with it, to control the way you think. Think about reality. So rather than saying, I don't like capitalism or you know, I don't like free enterprise, say, okay, well, let's think about economic reality. What are the rules and principles that we know from studying history and economic reality, actual economic experiments that we just need to take on board. So the relationship between supply and demand or the price function, they don't care about your feelings. Uh, you want to know those things, and so the question is always, okay, well, what's, what's economically true? And then if we first ask that question, we think things, economic reality rather than terms,
1: I think we're much more likely to find a solution. So when we talk about an abstract word like socialism, you got to drill down to say, okay, what does that really mean day to day? Yeah,
0: what does it mean? What's the definition? And also, when it's been applied, when people claiming to be socialists have actually tried to implement it in history, what has resulted? That's a relevant question. So people that advocate socialism can't just simply avoid the 40 or 50 or 60 actual socialist experiments.
1: What are some good examples of of, uh socialism? Socialism tried and and, uh, and failed.
0: <laughs> Obviously, the late Soviet Union, uh, certainly under Lenin and Stalin, was a yeah. catastrophe that led to the deaths of millions of people. Uh, the communist revolution in China led to probably 65 million deaths. The most recent one, of course, is in Venezuela. People will often say, "Well, I don't. We don't believe in these violent revolutions. We want." Democratic socialism, where
1: you get socialism in the ballot box. Well, they had that in Venezuela. Well, what happened in Venezuela? Venezuela is cruising along one of the wealthiest countries mm-hmm. in, in the Americas, and then they've got new leadership. New leadership did what five things that <laughs> caused it to crash? What did they do? Well, the, the
0: big thing, of course, it was initially Hugo Chavez, who, as a kind of left wing populist, convinced enough voters uh that their system was unjust and so yeah. once he got into power he started nationalizing industries so you know venezuela has a is a huge petroleum industry they started nationalizing that they did the sorts of things okay, that socialists so do we're at a level of absolute they yep.
1: nationalized petroleum now okay why is that a bad thing well that's
0: a bad thing because if if you've got a private company it's going to have to compete for customers right yeah. it has to compete based on global prices Uh, If the customers don't like it, they might go somewhere else. Well, whenever an industry is nationalized, we know this again from the 20th century, it becomes hugely inefficient and has a very difficult time uh, uh, responding to supply and demand. It lacks all the basic incentives. So if you have a company that's uh, nationally owned, just think of the DMV. There's a reason that you're treated differently at the DMV than you are treated when you go, say, to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, right? There's no competition for the DMV. I always get into the first-class line at DMV. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I always look for (laughs) that, never find it. (laughs) No, but I mean, this is the reality. In a socialist system, your incentives are not to serve Customers, your incentive is to curry favor with whoever the regulator or the person in power is.
1: So, Venezuela uh, nationalized the oil. What else did they do?
0: Well, they, uh, they, they messed, of course, with, with currency. So, it's a, it's a sort of cluster of different things. I think uh, the collectivization or nationalization of industry was the big thing. Massive corruption, which, you know, socialists uh, aren't the only form, of, that's not the only form of political corruption. But, of course, there is massive corruption. So, you lack the rule of law. This is what you often see. In socialist countries, you have a government that's extremely large, but doesn't even do the basic things that government is supposed to do, which is to play a neutral umpire and to protect people from violating the rights of others. It ceased to do that, and very quickly, it's ended up, you know, one of the major basket cases in Latin America. And Maduro, the new leader, has, has continued Chavez's policy, and it's, you know, it's anyone's guess what exactly is going to happen in the next few years. But as long as they maintain these policies, they're certainly not going to get out of the mess they're in.
1: Well, that brings us back to the United States. Let's nationalize health care. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the
0: argument that essentially, remember, we were told before we had this this private free enterprise health care system, right. uh, you know, prior to 2008 that needed to be reformed. In fact, we didn't. We had a kind of semi socialist system already in which it, we had what economists call a third party payer in which uh, the customer that is the patient and the doctor, the provider, we don't actually you don't actually know as a medical customer of what the price of your goods is. So the thing we actually needed is to increase the supply and increase competition in healthcare. It would have increased the quality and brought the price down. Instead, we centralized it partially under Obamacare, and now people are saying, well, let's go ahead and totally centralize it. I mean, this is absolutely crazy. And if you want to know what's, what would happen, just look at the three market segments in which government has been most involved. So you've got higher education, which would be college, healthcare, right? and banking, especially mortgage banking. These are the three places that in, in our economy that generally tend to be messes, and they're the three places where the federal government has had the most intimate involvement, unlike, say, uh, the internet and, and tech innovation in which uh, you know, value goes up year on year.
1: I make this point repeatedly. When we talk about all these, all these institutions and industries, we're not talking specifically, they're not, they're not filled with bad people. They're filled with decent people most of them, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to do the right thing as they see it, most of them. right? But institutionally, you can't sit in Washington and decide what the student loan program is going to be or what a mortgage program ought to be. You need to be close to the action. That's right. Could you
0: amplify? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's this sort of bias that people working in business act for sort of venal and selfish motives, whereas presumably... Government regulators act only for sort of altruistic motives. Of course, real human psychology and motives are are complicated. But the truth of the matter is, is we always hear about the five or six bad actors in business. We don't hear about the tens of thousands of private companies and public companies that are uh, serving their customers and, and actually creating value but almost everything around us bill is it's been created by either a current or a past business everything we wear every car we drive every every building we occupy every house we live in those things are produced by businesses and so this idea that those are the primary source of sources of evil uh, in our country I think we we need to challenge that we need to make people aware of the fact that first of all human beings are sinful in In any enterprise. So there are coaches and there are priests
1: uh, and there are school teachers that are selfish, but there's
0: nothing uniquely selfish about
1: business or about free enterprise. Well, the way I think about it is you take two people, two kids, they both go to Penn State. One of them goes to work for, I don't know, pick a big company, Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And the other one goes to work for the Health Department of Health and Human Services. And then but they've had the same education. They come from the same neighborhoods. They have the same socioeconomic background. Right. They go to the same churches or not. Sure. And all of a sudden, you fast forward 15 years later. One of is executive at Microsoft. The other one's a regulator at, oh, uh, well, I don't know. Let's say, let's say the FCC. Yes. And one is presumed to have only good intentions. That's the regulator. Mm-hmm. And the, the Microsoft executive is presumed to have not good intentions. Only bad intentions. Yeah. yeah. Break that down. Well, this I mean, this is crazy because if you
0: actually think, okay, how do businesses in a law-abiding country, right? So I'm not talking about Haiti. I'm talking about the United States or one of these beloved yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to talk about it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, how do businesses generally succeed? Do they do it by ripping off their customers, by defrauding the public? No, generally, they, they succeed by bringing prices down, uh, providing goods and services uh, in a better and more affordable way than they're competitors. So yes, they're competing against competitors, but they're also competing for your business. That requires that businesses that are gonna succeed have to be other directed. In other words, yeah, maybe they're, they're interested in the bottom line. That doesn't mean that's not one of the motives, but they have to be focusing on the needs of customers. And so this is why George Gilder has often said, and said for decades, that, that enterprise, free enterprise is ultimately altruistic. Altruistic in the sense that altruism is about acting for the benefit of the other. That's the normal way that a business succeeds in this country.
1: Well, just in preparation for the show and a couple of other shows, I, I always like to curl up with my copy of Karl Marx Selected <laughs> Writing. And the. the well, dog eared, I if, see, yeah. Well, dog eared. <laughs> well, the Communist Manifesto I read pretty carefully just because it's, it's a really, what a work of fiction. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that Karl Marx had never been in a factory, no. had never met a laborer. Had never really been involved in any kind of private enterprise he was an intellectual intellectual yeah. wrote the book sitting in the british library yes and he based a lot of it on reports that from uh, problems in factories that have been put together by agencies i don't mm-hmm. know what, what people are doing in england in 1840 or 1850 when he was writing but uh, it turns out that all the stuff that he claimed as terrible practices 10 20 years on those industries those factories had fixed all the problems because they couldn't afford to have anybody working in those conditions they wouldn't attract employees their customers wouldn't like buying from somebody right. that was that was producing stuff in a bad factory. So the industry self regulated Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 we have to always remember that in a competitive environment,
0: there's competition for labor. So it's not like, okay, there was just one factory and everyone had to work in that one factory. And as the country got more prosperous, in this case, England, there was even more competition for labor. Uh, Bill, what I think is the, the sort of most telling prediction... Uh, of Marx in the Communist Manifesto as he claimed that the wages of workers should go down under what he called capitalism. And in fact, factories just a few miles away from where he was writing that at the time, wages were
1: going up rather than down. So in other words, economic realities
0: said exactly the opposite of what his theory said.
1: We've got a lot to cover and we've got a short time to cover it, but I did want to cover something in a book that you wrote called The Human Advantage. Mm. And that really gets to this question. England got more prosperous, they paid higher wages in the factories, but then... Those higher wages caused businesses, even back then, to begin to automate. Right. Machines replaced people. Mm-hmm. Horses were replaced by other other things. But, but people generally were, were pushed out of those old jobs, and somehow they found new jobs. Right. Let's fast forward to now. There's a lot of issues about what's going to happen when computers take over the world, and there's going to be no jobs left right. for everybody else. That's the prediction, is
0: that sometime in the next 20 years, about 50% of all jobs are going to get automated and and disappeared by either robots or really advanced smart computers. Uh, This kind of argument, Bill, this basic claim has been made for hundreds of years. It's just that it has a kind of high-tech twist to it. Um, If that were true, if new technology permanently created unemployed people, all of human history would be a long depressing story of increasing unemployment. But of course, that's not what happens. What happens is that, yes, some Old ways that we do things mm-hmm. become obsolete, and we find more efficient ways of doing it. But that opens us up to new and uh, very often much better things that, and new jobs that we need to do. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be a problem. I do think that automation is going to lead to disruption. But the problem is not permanent technological unemployment. It's, okay, what do we do to help people transition during that disruption so that they find new and, and better and more productive things to do? Well, it's also
1: true, though, that there are many people that are not going to be able to make that transition. If you've been working in a factory and you're now expected to go be a healthcare worker, mm-hmm. you may not have the, the skills. But I think we are saying that from generation to generation, we're wildly adaptable. Absolutely. And, and people are trained to go into these new occupations which didn't exist before. No, that's right. And I, I actually
0: think, if anything, we're more adaptable now. If you think of someone at the time of the American founding, right, at 1776, <clears> they lose yeah. their family farm, they probably had literally nothing Uh, that they could do as a live alternative. Most people in the United States actually do have alternatives. Now, it might be that if you're a long-haul trucker, you're not gonna be a healthcare worker, but it might be uh, and could be quite likely that with a little training, you could do a skilled trade job uh, for which there's millions of skilled trade jobs that remain unfilled because of simply lack of of work. And so that's the kind of transition I would see. Everybody's not gonna become a computer engineer but we don't want everyone to become computer engineers. There's going to be all sorts of so-called white-collar and mental work. There's also going to be a lot of physical work left
1: to do. Well, and also, I think it's true, we're graduating about twice as many kids as we need from college. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we're preferring college. There are tens of millions of jobs that are going... um, That are open. Yeah, and going unfilled.
0: Because we have, for decades preferred college education there's a kind of over. elitism there that is you've got, that it's yeah. somehow that's inappropriate to human dignity to yeah. say be an electrician or a painter or a landscaper i think that's a, a serious mistake and i'm glad to see that some policymakers are starting to
1: realize that so in the few moments we have i one thing i wanted to go back to in your book was the the, the greed myth mm. believing that the essence of free enterprise is greed That's that's the key myth
0: that I think uh, sort of stumps everyone. The question's not whether there are greedy people. Look, I'm I'm a Christian. I think that the human race has fallen, gather two or three people together, and there's going to be some greed in the mix. The question is whether free enterprise as a system is based on greed. That's absolutely untrue. If anything, and this has been argued since Adam Smith first argued it, what free enterprise system does is it channels both people's ingenuity and their creativity into socially beneficial outcomes and it has the capacity even to channel our greed and our selfishness into beneficial outcomes. The the butcher, the brewer, the baker, for instance, even if he or she is selfish, in order to make a profit, uh, the best thing he can do is actually provide something that people will freely buy. So markets, while they can channel greed, are absolutely not based on greed.
1: Well, and you also make the point that people can have impure motives but if they want their businesses to succeed doesn't matter what their motives are it matters whether they've created something the marketplace wants that's exactly right and we you should... you point out that the guys from the founder home depot didn't exactly do it <laughs> right. uh, as uh, they were very, not as angels maybe as colony yeah.
0: they, they they wanted revenge over you know their <laughs> former employer
1: what's how's that story
0: <laughs> yeah i mean they'd worked for handy dan uh they essentially got fired and got together and said okay let's make a better competitor but to make a better competitor they didn't they didn't blow up handy dan what they did is they created a company that was a heck of a lot better and now most people don't even remember handy dan that's the market
1: <laughs> the uh, uh explain you, you, you quoted adam smith just a minute ago and he came up with something that i don't not sure i completely understand which is the invisible hand of yes. the market which is people acting like bernie and and uh, arthur blank at uh, and creating home depot that and there are all sorts of other people like that uh, building their own businesses and they've got suppliers mm-hmm. somehow this self-organizes in a way yeah. that he called the invisible hand
0: that's right and the idea is that this just happens under any circumstances just yeah. get a bunch of people together and you're going to get an amazing well-distributed market but rather in what he called the natural system of liberty in which you have the rule of law private and private property rights, all those things are in place. Then what happens is that people just pursuing their sort of ordinary interest, right? Like, well, I need to make some money to pay for my daughter's braces, will participate in a system that creates wealth for everyone overall, so that you have a system that is ordered and structured and looks designed, but isn't designed intentionally by any one person.
1: The uh, book we're talking about that Jay has written is called Money, Greed, and God. And it's one of the best books I've come across in explaining how markets work, why they're moral, why they're good for people. Um, Jay, in this closing minute or two, do you want to describe uh, for us again why, uh, what what your essential theme is in this?
0: Absolutely, that if, if we ask the question, okay, what economic system that we know of is best at allowing cultures to emerge from poverty, allow individual people, including recent immigrants, to go from poverty to relative wealth, that is best at channeling people's creativity and ingenuity At best allowing us to exercise our proper freedom. If we ask what system that is, there's only one answer and it's
1: free enterprise. That's the central message of the book. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Bill. Good. Uh, We've been talking with Jay Richards, author of uh, The uh, Money, God and Greed, highly recommended on Amazon. A lot to learn in here. We've covered about 2% of what I wanted to cover, (laughs) uh, which brings me to my next point. We're gonna be continuing our conversation with Jay in our after show, which will continue, uh, will will be on the internet, on the the website for us. And so I hope you join us there as well for the continuation of the conversation with a very smart economist and moral philosopher, Jay Richards.
0: Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at Billwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.